0: This is the Mark Stucheski Podcast. Before we start the show, I have a gift for you, my top five productivity tips for solopreneurs. To get them, go to top5productivitytips.com. That's the number five, top5productivitytips.com. And it's possible that I over-delivered, and you'll have to find out for yourself. Just go to top5productivitytips.com. Christina Dent is the founder and president of End It For Good, a conservative nonprofit based in Mississippi. They invite people to consider shifting from a criminal justice approach to drugs to a health-centered approach that reduces harm. Christina, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Mark. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: Are you still in Mississippi?
1: I am. Born here, raised here, went to college here. Got married, lived here, never lived anywhere else.
0: Wow. I, I still remember being in school up in a suburb of Rochester, New York, and learning how to spell Mississippi. That was a tongue twister. I mean, you grew up there, so it was easy for you. But I remember learning Mississippi. I'm like, why are there so many S's in there and double double letters? And But I, I, I did conquer it. So I, obviously, I graduated school, so that's always a good thing. Um, so I just read your intro. Do you have anything else you want to share with the audience to kind of put you and our conversation in the context?
1: Yeah, so like I told you, I was born and raised here in Mississippi. Um, I was homeschooled, kindergarten through high school. Wow. Um, yeah, it was a great experience. I had I had one short uh, stint in eighth grade where I thought my life would be, you know, immeasurably better if I was in school. So my parents let me go and visit for a day and I came home and was like, oh man, that's a lot of time <laughs> spent in school. I think I'd rather like do my school in three hours and then babysit and do whatever I want to do the rest of the day. So um ended up going to a uh, uh, Christian university. I have a degree in Bible. So my, my story that we'll kind of get into is um, there's no history of drug use or addiction or anything like that. I, I did not have friends using drugs in high school or college. Um, it really was not on my radar at all until I became a foster mom.
0: You know, it's funny with homeschooled, is your obviously your parents are your principal, your teachers, and you probably can't, you know, do the excuses most people can. I don't feel well because your mom knows, yeah, get, you know, if nobody else here, get the class. Uh, and you couldn't show up late because it was your home. So there's some excuses you couldn't use. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. My mom was real um, lax. She was not one of those like, okay, we're going to get up and we're going to kind of have like a school schedule. She was kind of like, I hope y'all don't get up early because I don't plan to get up early. We would get up at like nine o'clock in the morning oh, nice. and, you know, do our work and I'd be laying in bed doing my math work and <laughs> um it was great. We just I feel like it really taught us how to manage time because, you know, it was up to us. We had to get that work done and, you know, there were things we couldn't do until the work was done. And so you, you figured out real quickly, I can either make this stretch out the whole day and ruin my day, or I can just get this done. Um, and I feel like it set me up well for lots of other things in life where you need to have a lot of Personal investment mm-hmm. in getting something done and and making use of your time.
0: I, I bet the, the lunch lunchtime was a much better than the schools. <laughs>
1: It was lots of grilled cheese and my mom was like I'm not doing the you know I'm not making a big deal out of this this is just going to be easy. So no lunch menus or anything like that. No, no, <laughs> no. You probably had way more options for lunch than I had cuz she was like I'm doing the same thing every day.
0: Nice. Well, let's talk about the, you know this shift cuz you're you're the founder and president of End It For Good. I love the name of that organization by the way, End It For Good. So tell us a little bit more about what is End It For Good and what made you start this?
1: Yeah. So we are an um, education and advocacy nonprofit that works to um, really invite people into a conversation about, is there a better way to approach drugs and addiction that would have less harm societally than what we're doing right now using the criminal justice system for it? So when we talk about harm, we're talking about things like crime, crime, Overdose deaths, uh, incarceration, all of these kinds of things that we associate with drugs. Um, And what I came to learn is that actually a lot of those things are caused by our drug policies, not by the drugs themselves. So that journey for me started... Um, in a parking lot at the local child welfare office. Um, we had become foster parents and uh, we got a call asking if we could take this baby straight from the hospital after he was born because his mom had been using drugs while she was pregnant. So he was removed and put in foster care because of that. And we said yes. And he came to our house and, um, He was with us about a week before I went to bring him to his first visit with his mom. And when we got there, um, I pulled in the parking lot, popped his car seat out of my van and turned around and there was his mom literally sprinting across the parking lot, weeping towards us. And she ran over and started kissing him, talking to him. And I did not have any context for addiction, didn't know anything about it. I could not fathom how a mom who loved her child could possibly be using drugs while she was pregnant. Um, So in my mind, that meant she doesn't love her child. Otherwise, she wouldn't have been doing this. But what I'm seeing here is this sort of raw, vulnerable um, love from her, which, you know, for me, I went straight to suspicion. This can't be real. You know, Instead of kind of allowing it to challenge what I had previously thought, I wanted to kind of make sense of what I already thought. And that meant to discredit and discount what she was showing me. And so that's kind of how I'd, I thought about that. But it really um, uh, shook me because it, it felt so genuine from her and she spent her one hour of time with her son in her visitation, and then she left for inpatient drug treatment in North Mississippi. But she would call me from treatment; I had given her my phone number, and um, and she would say, "Can you put me on speakerphone?" And she would sing to her son over the phone. And the more that I got to know her, the more I realized she is a mom. Just like me, she loves her son just as much as I love my three sons. And she's also struggling with this really complex health crisis, but it's not a lack of love. It's not a lack of wanting to be free from the addiction. Um, she was also a believer. Uh, although she would say today, you know, she's grown immensely in her faith over these years of, um, her working on her sobriety. Um, and being sober for the last uh, almost six years now, and um, but that was a beginning for me because it really shook this foundation of, you know, the the reason I'm okay with putting millions of people like her in prison every year is because they're not people like me. It's because they don't love their kids. They're they're just sort of a fundamentally kind of bad person as opposed to people like me who are, you know good people. Um, And she just showed me, Joanne just showed me um, in such a vulnerable way, helped me to see myself in her and realize something is radically wrong here because I do know that we're putting millions of people like her in prison for the exact same problem that she is struggling with. And that really set me on a journey of learning. I wanted to know, um, number one, how can we help more kids in foster care? Because the vast majority of children in foster care today are there because of some drug related reason 50% of kids in mississippi's foster care system are there for a drug related reason now that might be that they just tested positive on a on a drug test and a, a judge got a hold of that and removed the kids solely based on that but it can also be for you know chaotic addiction where there is neglect happening in the home and so you know i thought here i am in foster care because i want to care for vulnerable families And that means that I need to understand what's happening with drugs and how we're handling them if I want to care about kids that are in foster care.
0: You know, my heart really breaks when I see someone who is addicted to drugs. Of course, we have an opioid uh, epidemic here in this country and people who, and I'm not as well versed as you are in this, but people have the life. And then they get hooked. Maybe it's through a surgery or something like that. And they lose their their spouse, their kids, their home, their job. They lose everything because of that drug. And you know, And I think part of the blame is to the pharmaceutical companies because these drugs are highly addictive. But they can ruin your life. And when I see someone like this, you just can't say, oh, get over it. Stop using drugs because the drug has such a hold on you. That you just don't say. I'm not going to do drugs anymore. Now I've never, fortunately, I've never taken drugs more powerful than Advil or Tylenol. And matter of fact, if I had surgery, I won't take those, the lace drugs they give you to the pharmacy because I know they're addictive. It, it, my my point is, my heart goes out to these people because no one wakes up and goes, you know, I'm going to get addicted to opioids today or crack or heroin. No one does that. They just. You know, for whatever reason, get exposed to it and then the drug hooks them and then it just ruins their lives, their family's lives. Like you talk about this young woman, it just drugs are not when they're used incorrectly, which means outside the medically, uh, the medical field, they can destroy so many lives.
1: Yeah, so it was really interesting for me to kind of go on this journey of trying to learn okay, where is all of this harm coming from then? You know, is there something different we could do with people like Joanne rather than, you know, putting her in jail for her addiction? Um, I really quickly learned that drugs are readily available in jails and prisons across the United States. So putting somebody in jail is not fixing their addiction. They have just as much access there as they do on the outside. I've actually heard multiple people tell me who've been in jail that they had more access because at least in the outside world, you actually have to go somewhere. You have to call someone, you have to whatever in jail. It's just right there.
0: So they get put in jail for using drugs and then they go someplace where drugs are readily available.
1: Yeah. Yes. So, so we're not addressing the drug problem by putting them in jail. Um, but also kind of zooming out even further and saying, okay, what's causing crime? What's causing overdose deaths? Uh, What's causing addiction? What's causing the destabilization of families? Um, It was so interesting for me to, to kind of zoom that out and say, okay, all right, so what's causing crime? Well, you know, you think about drugs cause crime, but really when you kind of go down a level, Um, You see that, no, actually, the vast majority of crime is caused by drug prohibition. It's caused from pushing that huge drug market underground. So instead of having a, a legally operating market, you have one that's only able to operate in the criminal underground, which means... The only people making money from it are people engaged in criminal activity. Um, and so it it really, when you, when you prohibit a popular substance, you aren't fighting crime, you are funding it by providing this huge financial incentive for people to commit crime, to be part of this extremely lucrative market. Let me, let me interrupt so it, you there. I got a yeah. question
0: for you. So my wife and I watch uh Chicago Wednesday, Chicago med PD and fire. And they had an episode or a couple episodes, a couple seasons ago where they were trying to say, Hey, let's have this little clinic where people can come shoot up. They'd use clean needles. There'd be medical staff on there. Is that some of what you're talking about? Is that is that something, is that a real thing or is that just on TV?
1: Yeah, no, that's actually, um actually, so the U.S.'s first overdose prevention sites, which there's different names for them, um, opened in New York City just uh, last week. Oh, and wow. they've been in other places. They're in Canada. They're in lots of other countries around the world, but the U.S. has not been willing to um, allow them to Operate. Um, and so they have just opened in New York. Now, I would look at that. I, I would say, you know, before I met Joanne, before this journey, I would have said that is absolutely bananas. How on earth? Why are you giving people like a, a, a safe place and clean needles? Aren't you, aren't you enabling their addiction? Aren't you just encouraging them to use drugs? But if you look at the research that comes out of those overdose prevention sites. What you see is they're saving people's lives. No one has ever died who has been um, using drugs at one of those because they have um, overdose reversal medication on hand. And they give people a touch with Healthcare with options for exiting that chaotic uh, addiction. Okay. So you're not forced to. They're not forcing people into treatment, but you can come. You can be safe. You can be with people who are caring and compassionate, and who can say, you know, tell me about, tell me about your use. You know, what is this? What you want? Is, is it? Is there something else you want in life? Um, and for people, when you begin to understand the The main causes of addiction, um, it's that most people, you know, addiction does not form in healthy places. It forms where there is um, disconnection, or trauma, or loneliness, or all of these difficult things that humans don't cope with well. So we all have different ways of coping with the feelings that we don't like to feel, uh, or the the traumas that happen to us, things done to us that are really painful. And sometimes those develop into addictions. They can be, you know, addictions to food or to your social media or to your work. Um, You can become a workaholic. They can also be addictions to substances or processes like gambling. There's all sorts of different ways that we sort of try to self-medicate these difficult experiences um, in our lives. So when you when that begins to kind of form how you think about addiction it's much easier to understand why places like that would be really helpful, because if you can take people out of uh, fear and shame and bring them into a place where they can experience just a little bit of safety, of compassion, of uh, an offer of help that's non-coercive, um, it's incredible what that can do to help people make their own healthier choices and to bring them out of that chaos just long enough to feel like maybe there is another way. Um, So in this overdose epidemic that we have, you know, one of the second things that I learned, um, so prohibition causes all this crime, but it also causes a lot of contamination in the drug supply on the street. So you can't regulate things that you don't allowed to be sold legally. So there's no, you know, you get a baggie of something on the street, it's who knows what. Um, And that's why so many people are dying today because of overdoses. The CDC just released their provisional data for 2020, and we went over 100,000 people dead of a drug overdose. Um, The vast majority of those are opioid related. But when you look into those opioid numbers, what you see is that the vast majority of them, over 80% of them have fentanyl in their systems when they die. Now, fentanyl is a is a drug that's been used in hospitals for decades. Um, and when you use it in a medical setting, it can be an incredibly helpful painkiller. Um, but when it's on the street, uh, it's not because it's really, really potent. And when people, when you combine high potency without any knowledge of what's actually in the drug that you're buying, what you get is this razor thin margin between getting high and dying. And so when you have prohibition, it causes more and more people um, to use drugs that are laced that they got on the street and far more people are dying because of that today. So something like an overdose prevention site is a way to, to kind of release that pressure valve and say, you know what, if, if we're not ready to allow people to legally access the drugs that they want, at least we're going to offer them a place to use the, the laced drugs they're using right now where we can actually save their lives if something bad happens and where we can offer them an option to get out of that drug use or addiction that they're in. Do you think
0: that's going to grow in the United States?
1: I hope it does. I think it will. So what I see happening is uh, incredibly tragically that more and the more and more people die, there becomes a sort of tipping point of maybe we're willing to try things we have not been open to before. And for me, that's just heartbreaking to, because it really is this sort of scale of how many people have to die before we're willing to look at research and evidence rather than just sort of the knee-jerk reaction that we have to, I don't like the way that feels. That feels to me like I'm enabling their addiction rather than what does the research say about those kinds of places? It shows that they're saving thousands of lives and they're helping more people exit addiction non-coercively just by offering them their own voice, their own autonomy, the ability to stay alive, and the ability to access that treatment when they're ready. So we can save lives, um, but we're going to have to consider things that we haven't been willing to consider before. Um, And I think that we can do that once we realize what's causing all of the harm. So if you want to get rid of crime in your community, you've got to address the fact that the reason that crime is there is because of drug prohibition. If you want to save lives from overdose, we have to address the fact that the vast majority of people are dying From drugs they bought on the street that are laced and they're highly potent, that's not going anywhere. That's a feature of a criminalized prohibited market. That's just part of it. And there's the only way out of that is to allow people to access legally regulated substances. um, And in the meantime, allow them to use whatever substances they are using in a place where if they overdose, there is somebody there to offer Medical care.
0: The Productive Life, a membership for solopreneurs, will help you gain confidence and clarity, show you how to deal with overwhelm, and teach you how to get and stay focused. To find out more and to sign up, visit theproductive life membership.com. Reminds me of the broken window syndrome. Uh, I at first I didn't hear about it, but if you're not familiar with that listener, is once you allow a community allows broken windows it's a really slippery slope because then people start having abandoned buildings and then people start going in those buildings to have parties. And so the the theory is, is if you fix a broken window, you won't go down that slippery slope. But I want to go back to, you know, you started this organization. You told the story about Joanne and stuff like that. At what point did you, did you, maybe I guess with your husband or whatever saying, you know, I, I don't want to keep reading this stuff on the news or on social media. I want to be part of the solution. So take us back to that moment where you decided you're not just going to be a passive you're a passive viewer, you're going to do something. Take us back to that time.
1: Yeah. So I, I went on this journey and I learned it ended up completely changing my mind about how we should approach drugs and addiction. I've moved completely away from a, a criminal justice approach. Um, and not just because it doesn't work, but it actually creates the it, it creates more of the things that feed addiction. So trauma is the biggest driver of addiction. The criminal justice system produces trauma in people's lives. And so um, I've moved away from that wanting us to approach it as a um, health issue, public health issue. Um, if people are non-problematically using, then there's there's not really anything to be done there. You can educate people, but just like with alcohol today, you know, we don't try to forcibly make people stop using it. We just We mitigate the harms to the community from people's choice to use. Um, And so I I began to see, okay, what we do with drugs has this massive impact. I mean, just unbelievable impact on society and culture. Our world is, um, all of us, whether we use drugs or not, we live in a world that is marked by the outcomes of drug prohibition. Uh, there, none of us can, can really even fathom the world before that time because that's all we've known. And it's part of our daily lives. So many things about our lives are impacted by it. And so I, I thought, you know, here I am in foster care in order to kind of help vulnerable families. And I actually think now maybe the most helpful thing that I can do is to work on this issue, is to work on inviting other people into a similar journey to learn what's causing the harm and to consider alternatives to consider, you know, ending the criminalization of possession so that we don't put consumers in jail anymore, um, considering legal regulation so that those drugs get taken off the streets, which ends a lot of the crime and it ends a lot of the contamination and deregulation of those substances. Um, and so I I, I started, um, I, it actually started with a book discussion. So I read Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream, which is the best resource I still have come across on this issue. It just chronicles the last 100 years of what we've done with drugs through the stories of people that have lived out uh, what has happened. And so it's, it's really engaging. It's a um, really great, really great book. So I had posted a few things on social media, about my kind of changing my mind about drug policy. And a few people had commented. And so I just invited those people to come do a, this book discussion with me. And so we met at a restaurant and it was this really kind of magical evening of, I can't believe that we're talking about these kinds of big shifts in drug policy with a lot of conservative people. I'm conservative, I'm a Christian. Um, you know, this is like totally different than everything that I grew up thinking about drugs. And so I thought, you know, there was, there's something here. There's these 12 people, very similar kind of backgrounds to mine. Most of us are Mississippians, you know, by birth. And um I wonder if there's something here. So I, I hosted another one of those and those people invited some friends. And pretty soon there were, you know, 50 people that were coming to these book discussions. And it just seemed like it continued to grow. Then somebody said, hey, can you come host one you know, in Hattiesburg, which is two hours south of where I live. And I said, well, sure, but I don't know anyone. And these are all word of mouth. Like there's no, there's no marketing behind this. There's just, you know, invite your friends kind of thing. And he said, if you'll come and host it, I will invite people. So I went down there and did um, a discussion with them. And he had 30 people that came, all, all these different people from the community. And so it started as that, just a book discussion. And it really, because of the interest in considering something else than what we've been doing, that's what really got me in thinking, this could I don't, maybe this could be something. At that point, I was staying home with my kids. I had been in the private sector before that and um, had been home. And my youngest was getting close to starting school. And it just ended up like very organically growing. Now we're um, a nonprofit. We got nonprofit status in 2019. Uh, we have a staff of four full time employees now. Wow. Um, it just has just taken off as people have. Loved not just the message, not just the invitation to consider something that could save lives and prevent harm to families. And um, but the way that we do that in a tone that's respectful in a way that allows people to come and learn and end up wherever they end up. You know, I'd, we can be friends even if we don't end up agreeing on the best path forward on drug policy. Um, I don't see this as, you know, I'm a warrior out there, you know, fighting for the cause kind of thing. I'm trying to build bridges, as many bridges as possible, so that people can understand what's causing the harm that they hate. All of us hate seeing these overdose numbers. Almost everyone knows a family who's lost a child or a brother or a parent to an overdose. That's devastating. Those are harms that cannot be reversed. Those people are gone. But what we can do is understand why they died and do something to change the drivers that are causing so many people to die, so many people to be incarcerated, uh, so many people to live in communities that are racked by crime and violence. And when people have an opportunity to come and learn in a way that um, that gives them an invitation rather than beats them over the head, <laughs> we found people really want. To learn. They want to know if we can do something different. For a lot of them, that's a process of change. You know, I talk about this now in like 15 minutes of how I changed my mind. It was a two-year process of learning, of wrestling, of feeling like this goes against everything I've always believed about drugs. This feels like somehow I'm betraying my uh, political allegiance. It feels like I'm betraying my faith. Um, and it took a lot of time to work through that. And now I would say, You know, my change on drug policy is, is not a change in values. Those values are still there. I, I still absolutely value the sanctity of every human life. I would say that's the core of what changed my mind on drug policy isn't because my values changed. It's because I, I, as I came to understand drug policy and what's happening, I realized my values actually better align with a different approach. To drugs and drug use and addiction. Um, so I would say I changed my mind because of my belief in the sanctity of, of human life and in wanting to find the kinds of policies that keep the most people alive and offer most people the opportunity to, to thrive, whether that's, you know, Joanne and Beckham, who Joanne today is doing great. She's been sober now since Beckham was a baby. Uh, he is in kindergarten, you know, it's just all of this great story. Um, which doesn't always happen. You know, Mark, that's just the, all of us know that doesn't happen. We, we know people that have gone to treatment five, six, seven, eight times. And, and it can be so frustrating to walk that journey with people. And yet if you talk to other people whose loved ones are in jail, they'll say, let me tell you that didn't fix it for sure. Um, and now, so now there's just, they're still walking through the addiction. Plus all of the criminal justice issues, the time away from their families, uh, grandparents raising their grandkids because parents are in jail on a drug charge. Um, So when I look at those things, I say, you know, how how can we give the best opportunity? And I think that's um, it's important not to oversell what's possible. You can't force people to live a thriving life. You can't force people out of addiction. But you can offer them an opportunity, the best opportunity to build a life that's thriving where the addiction does not need to serve that purpose anymore. And they can find uh, human connection, spiritual connection, purpose and meaning in their life that can help them exit that cycle of addiction. And that's ultimately what I what I want to see. Changing drug policy, I think, is just one of the biggest levers that we could take to stop doing extra harm to people um, and give them maybe a better opportunity to find that thriving life that all of us want.
0: What about law enforcement have they been to any of your events have you dealt with law enforcement in your town what are their what are their thoughts on this
1: yeah we've actually had a lot of law enforcement that have come to events we're very um, specifically wanting to include them so we are always Inviting them, any event that we do in a in a city. So we've done 26 of these events now across Mississippi, um, and we just hosted our first full day summit with kind of outside speakers coming in. We had 250 people that came to that in Mississippi, um, and we found, you know, as you would expect, a mixture of perspectives. Some law enforcement say no, absolutely not, but the vast majority of them agree partially they would say maybe they agree on um, legalizing cannabis and maybe nothing past that. Uh, Maybe they agree on decriminalizing possession, uh, that we shouldn't be arresting people just for possessing substances, but they would not agree on any kind of legalization. So there's kind of a, as with just the general public, there's sort of a, people land in all different places, but the, the Uh, perspective that is across the board with law enforcement is that they are frustrated because they are arresting the same people over and over and over again and not seeing the result of that that they want. And they are being tasked with a job that they are not trained to do. They are not mental health providers. They are not addiction counselors. And yet they are being asked to go and fix a problem that is just fundamentally not part of what they're trained to do. They're not medical providers and addiction is, is fundamentally this a uh, health crisis and um, not a criminal justice crisis. So there's this mismatch of tools with problem. And that frustration is deeply felt with law enforcement that um, what they are, the tools they're given to work with uh, they feel are not the right tools for this issue. And I would say that's because The criminal justice system isn't the right tool for this issue. It's just fundamentally a mismatch of tools with problem. Well,
0: in just a minute, I'm going to ask you where we can find out more about you and what you're doing in the world. Before I ask you that question, just gave you a little hint there. Is there anything else on your heart that you want to share with the listener today?
1: yeah, so I'll tell you three quick little stories um, to help illustrate what we've been talking about. Um, so first, how prohibition increases crime. I was talking to a man whose mom grew up in Colombia, the country of Colombia and um, as we were talking over Zoom during the pandemic, he said um, he said, "Oh do you see this necklace that I'm wearing?" And he leaned forward and he showed me it was a little cutout of the country of Colombia on a little gold um, uh, chain and he flipped it over and he said, uh, on the back is my mom's blood type. This was the necklace that she wore when she was a little girl growing up in Colombia. The violence from the underground market was so great that the government um, encouraged regular citizens to have their blood type either tattooed on their body or on their body in some way because so many civilians were getting caught up in the crossfire of the cartels. And that was caused by prohibition. Um, that wasn't it's not because drugs are an inherently violent industry. You know, the alcohol industry is, is not marked by violence because it's legal. Um, it's a drug, but it's legal. It's legally regulated. So that kind of experience, thinking through, wow, that's, that's an incredible experience that is caused by our laws. It's not caused by the cocaine they happen to be selling. It's caused by the way that that cocaine was being sold on the underground market. Um, then I had a really interesting experience with my youngest son. Um, he cut his finger really badly and had to go to um, the emergency room. And he was four. He was just this little bitty kid. And we're in the emergency room and the nurse comes in and she says, um, here, I have a little bit of fentanyl to give him. Uh, it's just going to help with the pain before they do the stitches. Now, all around us, we have tens of thousands of grown men and women who are dying from fentanyl poisoning. And yet here is my tiny little four-year-old getting pure fentanyl. How How is that possible? It's it's possible because fentanyl, when it's used in a legal, regulated way, can be appropriately dosed for the body of a four-year-old in a way that's helpful to him. And when you take it out of that and put it on the street, you have grown men who are dying from fentanyl poisoning, which is not the difference between fentanyl and not fentanyl. It's the difference between how you access that fentanyl and whether or not you can get it legal regulated or you're using it on the street. And then I was in... Um, a courtroom, which I'm not in regularly. This was like a one time experience. I went to support a friend who was in um who was in court that day. But the way that courts work is you you all get there at nine o'clock and then you just have to listen through the cases that are done before you know whoever it is that you're there for. So we were listening through these other cases, and um it, it was a really shocking experience just to to kind of see the criminal justice system at work. I had no um very naively, you know, I'm thinking like law and order. You've got people, they're making these cases, you've got attorneys, you've got juries. And what I saw was actually, no, people, you get five minutes in the courtroom with an attorney who <clears throat> may have just looked at your papers this morning. Wow. And the judge is sentencing people just one after the other, in and out, in and out, in and out. Um, and you would just see these sentences, 16 years in prison, boom, you're out, Next person comes in 20 years in prison out. I mean, I I saw that. I saw those sentences given out that morning. But the one that really stuck with me the most was this man who came in. He was um, probably in his early 20s and he had been arrested for first time. um, It was his first interaction with the criminal justice system at all. First time trouble with the law. And it was heroin possession, not trafficking or anything like that, just possession. And he had been sitting in jail for four months because he could not afford the $10,000 bail. That they had set for him. <clears throat> so first, you got to kind of ask yourself, why would there be a ten thousand dollar bail for someone who's never been in trouble with the law, and they were just in possession of heroin? Um, so I went and looked him up because I wanted to know, like, I wonder what his life is like sitting in jail for four months. That's a long time. I mean, if you or I were just out of our life for four months, that's that's a big deal. So I, he had a really unique name. So I could look him up on Facebook. He was on there and I saw he's married. He has, um, a toddler age daughter was working, uh, in a trade field. Um, and just sit and think about that for a minute. What did that do to that young family? Maybe he was the sole breadwinner in that home. Um, and now he's gone. He's just gone for four months. Um, and he wasn't being let out that day. They had just brought him back in because he was requesting to have a, a lower bail amount set so that he could get out. And the judge said, well, you know, uh, okay. Uh, so he he decreased it to $5,000. And said, "Okay, you know, if I if it's five thousand dollars, can you do that?" And the guy was like, "Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I'll I'll try. <laughs> That's better than 10. Um, So you just all of these pieces. And you think about all of these people growing up with this crime, all these people dying of preventable overdoses, all of these people being loaded into our jails and prisons. And the overflow of that, the outflow of that in our communities is a profound nuclear response of family devastation. Um, so we're setting ourselves up for the next generation of addiction. By all of these children growing up in unsafe environments, growing up having lost family members or separated from family members for long periods of time. And we know that trauma is the biggest driver of addiction forming. And so if we want to save this next generation from the kinds of addiction issues that we have right now, we have to stop the things we're doing that are causing so much trauma in people's lives related to drugs. And that's what we want to invite people into is considering... Um, moving beyond our knee-jerk reactions, looking at the evidence and considering can we embrace things we might never have thought we would because it's the best way to reduce harm to people I believe are made in the image of God, um, people that are our neighbors. We might not know them, um, but God does, and He cares for them, and every single life is of immense value and worth.
0: Amen. Well, I am so excited that you were here because this is a topic we really need to discuss. So where can people go to find out more about you and your mission?
1: They can go to enditforgood.com. They can also find us on social media at enditforgoodMS. And they can find me on social media at Christina B. Dent. Um, End It For Good shares lots of visuals. I share a lot of kind of my thoughts on these issues. So come join us, enditforgood.com. If you're, if you're kind of like, this is interesting, but I don't, I would need to learn a lot more about this. Um, go to enditforgood.com slash get started. And there's just some easy ways. I did a TEDx talk in 2019. That's kind of a little bit of what we're talking about today. Um, just some easy ways to kind of learn and begin to, to dive in um, and come on a journey with us. We want to save lives. We want to prevent harm to families. Um, this is a journey of hope and redemption and renewal, and we would love to have you on it.
0: I love that. And as I always encourage my listener, don't be a passive listener. If if Christina's story and her talking to you moved you, go do something. And you can start it by going to enditforgood.com and get some information. Don't just go, Wow, yeah, I understand what she's saying. That's the problem with people listening to podcasts. They listen, they go, Oh, Christina moved my heart. Oh, what's next? No, don't don't that don't let that be you, listener. If this conversation moved you, take that next step, whatever that step is. Christina, thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Thanks, Mark. It was really an honor.
0: And before we go, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mark Stucheski podcast. I know that there is an endless stream of options for you in this day and age